Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, Australia, as you'll no doubt be aware, is Toyota country. I spent the good part of a decade as a journo living on a farm, 10 years before COVID, by the way. And in the bush, driving a Toyota Land Cruiser or Hilux Ute was the equivalent of a fancy Euro badge in the metropolis. I had Hilux and Land Cruiser Utes at different stages on the farm, and it was the only time I got close to being cool, although my city colleagues preferred the term bush pig. But the point is, Toyota for bush pigs and urbanites in Australia has for the past 20 years or so been rock solid, not overly fancy nor exciting. And Toyota could see that was becoming a problem across the Asia-Pacific region for its product, consumer perceptions and brand. It lacked spark and excitement. Hence, the company in 2018 embarked on a careful but ambitious and long-range overhaul of the brand across 17 different markets. Each of them had their own consumer positioning, taglines, communications and product roadmaps. It was fractured and perhaps most concerning was that Toyota was losing the younger set to the beats of rivals who were modern, snappier and positioning themselves for the new world of electric and mobility. Four years on from the early stages of a plan to re-energise and unify the Toyota brand across the Asia-Pacific, the car maker is nearly there and we have the two architects of the roadmap on the mics today to unpack what could probably be a blueprint for many, whatever the sector. Toyota's Singapore-based Regional Vice President for Sales and Marketing, Jerome Lewis, and the Sydney-based CEO of brand and design firm Houston, Stuart O'Brien, who is also behind Toyota Australia's brand overhaul that you've seen in market for a few years now, have a fascinating and instructive story to tell about how they convinced 17 fiercely independent markets to unify. It's a cracking tale, so enough from me. Welcome, Jerome and Stuart. Let's start with a challenge for the Asia-Pacific region, shall we? Maybe five years ago, there was a raft of new models and developments, customer perception issues, and multiple individual market strategies for brand identity, communications, and marketing for Toyota across all its important territories in Asia outside Japan. So what were the triggers, Jerome, for the sweeping overhaul we're going to cover in this session today? Ultimately, I think you got widespread support from about 17 different markets across Asia, and it's emerged as a massive and quite successful program. But you didn't really have a tight plan, did you? So you were kind of leaving it open-ended. Just talk us through, firstly, why Toyota needed this big program. What was behind it? And welcome, Jerome. Thank you. First of all, um, there was a global mandate to transform ourselves from a car manufacturer to a mobility company. Our vision was very inclusive of mobility for all. We wanted to lead the future mobility society and enrich lives uh, with the safest and more responsible way of, of moving people. And then there was a more regional or local response to strengthen our brand and our business in Asia. Yes, we are leader, but we also have a very disrupted environment, not so different from other regions with new players connected, electrification, autonomous, etc. We could see that the competition was getting uh, more intense with more competitors investing in Asia. Also, we wanted to secure our strong brand and particularly our brand affinity to younger audiences 
who have their own needs and expectations. And, and finally, we also noticed that we had a big disparity in the brand positioning and brand message across the markets. And we felt that this could potentially become an issue with more borderless societies. So it, it was both about uh, strengthening our brand to remain leader in the region and at the same time reaching our vision of mobility company. Right. And to be clear here, Jerome, I mean, those 17 markets we talk about outside of Japan, they all had their own taglines. They all had their own positioning. And so just for the listener, Toyota is quite different in the way that it structures and manages itself. So how did it get to 17 different positions, 17 different taglines, and the way the brand was represented? How does that work? How did that come to that? This is very much related to the Toyota culture of putting a lot of emphasis on finding the best solutions for each local market and, and their conditions. We have this word of best in town internally, which means that it's about finding really the most appropriate solution for each local community. And so as a result, we have developed a more decentralized approach over, over the years with each market looking after their own specific needs and solutions. So um, that was really, in a way, it was not the most natural for us to come up with a common approach across the regions. That's really based on, on our culture, and that has brought also a lot of success so far, because we have managed to build really strong relationships and, and partnerships in each market. And this is where it gets really interesting, right? Because it, both you and Stu talk about not having a tight or really refined roadmap or plan of where you are going to get to the starting point was essentially, let's start talking. That's correct. That's correct. We really wanted to have a lot of space for discovery together. And we didn't want to have too much of a precise idea of what we were going to do, but really spend more time on finding our commonalities and learning from each other. We, we felt that this was the best way to have you know, a smooth transition from a more decentralized approach to a more collaborative project. And we also knew that through this discovery, we would build probably stronger engagement and potentially also stronger advocates for the project and the brand in the future. Right. And just on this, before we get to Stu's perspective, if you think about it, I think some of the, you know, Toyota's dominant through some of those markets. I think you talk about perhaps the Philippines with a 50% share, if I got that right. Correct. And so, you know, if you've got Philippines with a 50% share and other markets sitting at 30, 40%, did you see looming on the horizon with such dominance that you say, we have to do something more, we have to bring, and particularly say with the young segments, talk us through what the challenge for Toyota, where it had landed with younger segments. It wasn't quite at the edgy end of what you felt your competitors were doing. Yeah, that's correct. I think the brand in the region is actually very strong, but we are more known for attributes like caring, professional, reliable, but a bit conservative. And we know that the younger audiences are expecting more, expecting brands to be more expressive and to be more energetic. So we wanted to make sure that we would really infuse these dimensions into the brand and we would really show more of ourselves, show more about our values, our beliefs and our personality. So what was Toyota doing hitherto, Jerome? So if you're saying you be more expressive and show more of the personality, what typified how Toyota communicated and presented its brand to market before you started having this realization or this shift? 
the way I, I think the the communication uh, of Toyota in the past was very much product oriented. So it was very much about product attributes, product benefits. But we were not communicating so much on really who we are. What do we do? The things we do. What is the vision behind? What's our true values and beliefs? And that was really a missed opportunity, particularly as younger audiences are expecting this more from the brands they love and they consume. Yeah. And so finally, before we sort of get into the process a little bit, mobility. Talk to us about what mobility means. Everyone's talking about it around the world and every automaker. What's mobility for Toyota? What is the vision there that clearly we're going to start seeing emerge more strongly in coming years? Yeah, so it starts really from the consumers and understanding that a consumer's expectations and preferences change and that uh, more and more consumers are looking maybe not so much to own a car, but maybe more to use and have multiple solutions and flexible solutions for different stages of their life or different moments in, in their life as well. So the idea is that from just, you know, mostly manufacturing a car and selling a final product, we try to build total solutions that will be flexible to the different needs of different customers. And that can go from, you know, car sharing or pre-maintenance or leasing. So trying to really adapt our offerings to what customers expect. And it's what's also very important in our vision of mobility is that it goes beyond physical mobility. Right. It's all also about social mobility, offering opportunities uh, of mobility to, to all individuals. And, and so it's a very inclusive uh, vision of mobility, which is slightly different from what most competitors uh, do. Yeah. And just to give a little tease there, when you talk about social mobility as opposed to physical mobility, which I'm assuming you're talking around the car itself, social mobility means what? Stu, mobility, you've got some thoughts on this as well. Yeah, thanks, Paul. I think I think one of the big uh, differences for the Australian listeners was the idea of mobility. We see ourselves moving, whereas the big insight across Asia, and, and I suppose we've probably only seen that last year or two within COVID. But remember, this started this project started before COVID, where the biggest insight I think across Asia is not just the mobility of me, but mobility to me, right? And and really, you know, one of the awakenings for us on the project was that that interaction between you know, I move myself around to the world actually coming to me, right? So mobility, I think, started off as me getting in something and going somewhere, whereas I think we're going to find in the modern world, and we're seeing that in Australia, we certainly saw that across Asia, that when you ask someone in the Philippines or one of these really congested markets, they talk about mobility of goods to me. So organisations like Toyota, when you think about their transport options, when you think about the opportunity for them is also this two-way mobility of products and services to customers, not just from customers, right? And it's a, it's a really big thing, I think, and that convergence, you know, that Jerome was talking about, different competitors suddenly starting to play in our space with different capabilities. Paint a picture there, Stu. So mobility to me as an individual, what sort of services and products are you talking about there? I think now, you know, when we're getting a lot of home delivery of, you know, now we're seeing groceries, now we're seeing services, you know, we, we started with the food ordering services on the back of COVID. You've seen so many of those platforms. So across Asia, that mobility to me has been happening for a long time. Right. Australia's a bit behind there, aren't we? We were very behind on that. And again, so it's just really important for, you know, those listening to this podcast to kind of 
get a, a difference of that mobility. I think when you're in Asia and working out of Asia, you really, mobility that is, is a bigger ideal anyway, rather than me just getting in and driving a car or me going somewhere. And I think it's, it's really important we see that and understand that. And organisations like Toyota see that, right, and, and see the changing need, therefore, placed on me needing to have the car to go and get something or go somewhere if it comes to me. Yeah, good point. Got it. And so, Jerome, just quickly, though, so when you started talking about different ways of mobility for the individual and in moving around, you talked about car sharing, for instance. Does that mean, so what could we start seeing there? What does that look like from a Toyota perspective when we've got those sorts of, that sort of thinking? We actually can see already a few initiatives in various countries of Asia Pacific with Toyota partnering with local entities as well to to offer some uh, car sharing uh, programs, also some kind of uh, mobility projects related to public transport or commuting. So it's it's really about mobility in all kinds of aspects, which can be mobility to go to work or can be uh, mobility in terms of sharing the cost of moving to one point to another right. or offering the flexibility of different types of, of mobility means over a certain period of time. Got it. So, Stu, let's just get to your thoughts before we get into We'll eventually get into this intriguing process that you both led in this initiative. But, Stu, your sense, I guess, with an Australian filter on what the market dynamics and what this program was about, you worked on the Toyota identity in Australia and then moved into the Asia-Pacific region with a bigger brief. But the market dynamics for at least um, for Asia-Pacific were, you know, it was quite fractured, right? So we've talked about this before. It was a very fractured sort of um, a region. It, it was, but, but actually each market, um, which we saw when we get into the process, we saw very similar attributes and, and very similar issues as what we'd seen in Australia, you know. And, and Toyota, um, you know, picking up on something Jerome was saying earlier, Toyota was a manufacturing business, you know, and, and was very much a product-centric organisation. So what started to happen in the work, or we saw when we got involved both in Australia and across Asia, was very much a segment-lend approach to often the campaign or the marketing. So Jerome's point of, of all that, because you, you work on an, a car a decade out, all the initial thinking, all the, all the innovation, all the smarts went into going and making a Yaris, it ended up being a Yaris targeted X audience and doing this and, you know, and the functionality or the benefit of the car to the segment. All the great stuff that happened at the innovation level of, you know, introducing RAV to Australia, introducing whole complete new car segments was lost or, or just not communicated. So, so it was really the distance between that conception that, that existed and the innovation. You know, if I use hybrid, for example, um, so much what Toyota had done. And that, again, talking to a cultural aspect of being Japanese was very humbled, you know, very quiet. You know, we, we whereas now a millennial or, or this kind of new world wants to discuss purpose, wants to talk about why we do things. They're a bit more rowdy, aren't they, those young people? Yeah, I don't know whether it's rowdy, but they, they share a lot more intent, let's, let's right. be honest. Um, but I think when there was no, no voice coming, where there was no innovation or that, that language, that whole message was lost, you know. And, and I, actually, when we first met Toyota in Australia in 2016, I reminded them of the, when I grew up, the sports car image, you know, the MR2, the silica, like all that type of really amazing stuff that brought that excitement and brought that energy. And, 
And again, it was really just reclaiming that and telling that story, Paul. So, you know, long way around, Asia had 17 Australias, but but once we started to get into some of the changing both macro, you know, and, and Jerome talked to this, there were these macro marketplace dynamics that were affecting us all, you know, carbon footprint, mobilisation, you know, shifting change back to urbanisation, you know, the activations of cities. These were all things that were confronting cars on a, a macro level. And then Toyota, you know, again, as any type of heritage brand or, or foundationary brand, needed that positive, you know, reclaim some of that voice, reclaim some of that space, reclaim some of that um, DNA that existed in the organisation and just re-engaging with it, to be frank, re- reconnecting with it. And, and this is exactly where we get to the start of the process, Jerome. So essentially, with all that um, background and context for what you felt needed to happen regionally in a strategic sense, it was about, okay, what are we going to do here without a blueprint that was fixed? So just start with that, why that was important not to come in with, with the answer, but to actually engage all those 17 markets first up in a collaborative conversation rather than going, right, here's what we need to do. Why and what happened? Talk us through what happened. First of all, uh, related to what I mentioned before, so we, we are a pretty decentralized organization when it comes to building strategy. So it would not have been natural to come with a very top-down approach. Right. A collaborative approach was more appropriate. Second, we have so much talent and expertise and insights in the market of you know, 50, 60 years of experience and strong relationships. We wanted to make sure that we would grasp and leverage that in the process. And also, there was really an intention for us through the process to give the opportunity to stakeholders to really discover more about their commonalities and the opportunities of collaborations and help them co-create and own the transformation, really. So they would become true advocates of the project and the brand. And ultimately, there was even an intention to elevate the brand culture across the company from maybe the marketing team to all the other functions. So it was very intentional for us to make a collaborative process that would be also an opportunity for every member to learn, to be educated and engaged. It was interesting you talk about, you sort of mentioned it there, but what one of the realizations that came through all the markets and to the team that was driving it was, to your point, that there was more commonality across those markets than anyone realized. And that came out of the conversation and they, it was self-realized, if you like. That's really true. And that was really interesting to see. So before this project, typically when you would talk about markets and strategies, the first thing the markets would highlight is how different they are, which of course they do have differences. We, we're not trying to ignore that. But what was really interesting to this project is when you step back, and you listen to the other markets and they share about their challenges, it's so interesting to see the reactions, the faces of the participants, to see how surprised they were, to see how much common these challenges were. And once you spend the time to listen to others and identify the commonalities, your mindset is very different. And that opens doors to more collaboration and more co-creation. And this is what the process did, right? Because you started out with a sort of open sourced agenda, if you like. Did you at any stage, I know that you didn't have a plan to have a unified identity, but did you hope that maybe that would be an outcome? Yeah, yeah. Honestly, we were hoping so. Yes, yes. We, we, 
we, I think we, we saw the potential from an early stage of, but we didn't want the conversation to be about the final output, but more about the objective and the discovery first. Got it. But, but definitely, definitely we were hoping we could reach the point where we are today. Is that the same in the back of your mind, Stu? You thought that's where we want to be, but we've got to see where it lands? To be honest, we, we read all the data. Um, you know, there's an enormous amount of market data and an enormous amount of tracking. So we were lucky enough when we we're analysing um, the research and the market conditions to see some of the similar drivers. So we were, we were really able to kind of talk about that. But it was important in our position, we acted quite neutral, you know, with, with no mandate for trying to win an ad campaign or, or trying to pick up the local and it was really important. Our neutrality uh, from an agency point of view was was critical. That this is in terms of Houston, you mean? In terms of Houston, and well, I think both for, from a TMAP and a Houston point of view, it was incredibly important that we re- retained a neutral position in this. That there wasn't, we weren't walking in with a digital agenda. We weren't walking with a comms agenda. We weren't walking with a product agenda, or even a. And, and, and we worked really hard for it to not be a marketing agenda. You know. Jerome and David, um, and, and we had really good buy-in at the council level, at the president level, um, across countries, and we did a lot of work explaining that this was not a communications job. It was not about making an ad. Um, this is very much around a narrative and a story and a consistency. And, and we used a few, not tricks, but really showing everybody this is a path to mobility and that this was a, we weren't just going to jump from where we were today to this incredible mobility organisation in 20 and 30 years. And so we talked a lot lot about, you know, nothing changing in five years, everything changing in 20, right? So we had these these systematic approaches to this that we had to start that journey together. And that may have still been 17 journeys. You know, that wasn't, our role wasn't to determine what path, but it was actually to help them articulate that and and move brand out of marketing um, was critical. So let's get to how you started out. Where the hell do you start building a coalition across 17 markets? <laughs> yeah. I'm imagining that part of it was through COVID, but there would have started pre-COVID and there was lots of planes, lots of meetings with people. What did you do to build this coalition to get to a point of, you know, agreements across, you know, 17 different territories? Yeah, Paul, I, I think I was platinum um, six weeks after uh, <laughs> we, yeah, I, right. I started. It was very important that we went to the source, Gemba. So in, in Toyota, um, there's a terminology called Gemba where, where you go to the source. So you go to the place where the information is. So it was really important we went and we sat and we listened. And and But in those sessions, we shared as well. So it was intent. It was sharing what we'd learnt on the pathway. So it was very much, it was a thousand things we did, not just one thing we did, if that makes sense. And as we went, we didn't just sit, we we moved forward, right, and we shared. So we, we accumulated information, and as we got to each meeting, we used the accumulated information to check in. So it wasn't just a, like a research process where we sat and went and collected all the data and then went back in. Every meeting was an opportunity to either come together or move apart. We worked really hard, to be frank, on on managing all the layers, you know, and managing all the partners across the distributors, the manufacturers, and then, you know, and we really activated the TMAP organisation as well. So the the regional office, you know, we made it part of their day job. It was a it was a real concerted effort, to be frank, 
Um, and a very, I, I think the, my poor guys probably spent more time, you know, sorting diaries, <laughs> you know, and probably even time, you know, right. time in market. But in saying that, we identified champions in each market on a practical level. Um, we identified the influences and we identified the blockers, you know, what were the things that, that we needed to, to address on this process. Very calculating, very systematic, and actually sharing. Gemba, it's going to the source. Jerome, was there any early kind of, not suspicions are too strong a word, but what's going on here? Did you have some barriers to jump initially? Actually, yes, yes. We, we had some skepticals among associates or even top executives about the necessity of this project, the necessity of this project at that timing. We really chose to spend a lot of time in the assessment, which also led to maybe the perception of a slow start. But I think this is really important because this is where you build your foundations. This is where you actually generate the fuel that you need for all the, the next steps. So spending the time to assess and engage the stakeholders is really important. You know, the human dimension of this project is, is for me, really interesting. I was mentioning about skepticals and some of them becoming, you know, the best advocates of the project. Or you can meet some, you know, enthusiasts who, you know, the doers, they, you give them an explanation of a workshop and then they want to start immediately and you need to invite them to, you know, have a deeper immersion and make sure they understand all the dimensions. So it's very interesting to be aware of this human dimension and try to leverage that the best you can. And so just on that, to both of you, at what point did it become apparent that this approach of building consensus was actually going to work, that actually you're getting support from it? Was there a moment or a few moments where we okay, okay, it's starting to take shape and we, you're getting the momentum, wind in the sails? Was there any points in the process that that happened? For me, there were yeah, a few points really very, very visible. The first one initially was related to what I mentioned, the discovery phase when you start seeing the faces of various market representatives, like, you know, so surprised to see the commonalities. That was really a point where we're like, okay, we have something. We have something to work on together. Just on that, Jerome, can I just ask on that? Yeah. So those commonalities you talk about, it's really interesting. So each market really thought they were, you know, unique or they had their own nuances. Yeah. What did they think was different about themselves and suddenly about their respective markets and then realized, oh, actually there was some commonality. Where were the points of difference they thought and it was challenged? I can answer that. I, I think there's a cultural, not bias, but there's a very much, a, there's very big different, you know, I think, I think each country and each culture tries to protect their own country and their own culture in Asia. A little bit like Europe, if we're serious. To be frank, even if I... Most West Australians I know think they're different to anyone, you know, we've got the same kind of cultural divide East Coast and West Coast, right, if you That's right. ask them. So there's, there are often perceptions rather than the realities, right? And I think where people got confused, again, it goes back to the product, was the product was different to the brand. So therefore you would look at the different types of cars or the different types of price points or the different competitive sets if you think about a Singapore to India or, you know, almost the different maturity of the car industry within each market. So they'd say there's just no way it can be the same, right? But when we talk about attitude, when we talk about attribution, when we talk about those macro, and, you know, Jerome touched on this, this, this realisation of borders coming down in this, you know, and, you know, I was lucky enough to work on Jetstar and launch Jetstar in Japan and Asia. So I've also seen that transformation of what the low-cost carriers and that mobility of those 
those younger people are really on the move, Paul, right? So people have started to actually see, wow, there's a, it's not just this, it's not just my country that's changing, it's the region that's changing. It is, it is Asia that's changing. And it was literally just a realization. And, and when you're in your own market, reading your own data, you carry those own cultural blocks to the country next to you or the, or the state next to you. And once you start sharing the data, you start to go, actually, that's a problem we all have. You know, once you start seeing the fact that, you know, price is still an issue, whether it's expensive or cheap, like there are, there are certain attributes that, that were, were, were similar in all markets. And that realisation was coming just by everyone talking. Well, yes, uh, yes, yeah. correct. And, and we would, to be honest, I can't, correct. we would have quite in-depth presentations as well where we'd show the voting, we, we would talk about, we would share a lot, Paul, like we would put onto dashboards all markets we would highlight similarities and then and then we Jerome will say we also made sure we identified the differences. So it wasn't like, oh, you're all the same. So so we we really balanced honestly, it was a balancing act between, you know, not trying to lead them down a path, but letting the, the, the facts tell the story. I, I would add that if you know, if you focus on traditional business, maybe with the level of expertise that all the markets have it's maybe more difficult to find commonalities. But once you start talking about transformation, electrification, new mobility, it's actually new territory for most of them. And that's where you realize that the challenges and the process they have to go through is very common and that there's really a big added value to work together so you can gain confidence, you can exchange ideas and be much more efficient. So I think that was also the timing to work together linked to this transformation was also probably appropriate because everyone was wondering, what are we going to do? Right. And realizing that you're all on the same boat and that working together will help you is really we powerful. We only got to the first point, Jerome, of your uh, where you felt the signals are coming from momentum and that was mobility. You've got some other ones. So we could be here for about five hours by the sounds yeah. of it. But what were some of those other key points that you felt with the momentum started to shift for the unified approach? We had a, one very engaging moment all in Bangkok. Uh, we had a beautiful location facing the river and we spent two days to really create this brand architecture together. So Every word we use today is the result of discussion, brainstorming, exchanges. That was really powerful. And, you know, beyond the content, beyond what we created, it was to see all these smiles and laughs and the level of engagement. You don't see that so often on a daily basis. So this is really a moment of engagement and connection of everyone with the brand, but also ultimately with the company. And I think that's invaluable to be able to create these conditions and this co-creation is going to bring benefits for for many many years to come. Stu did you have um, anything to add to those signals where okay this looks like it's going to work? Yeah look I think Bangkok was very special Uh, for me being you know inverted commas an agency person I started to feel it um, a real rapport build across the markets I started finding my diet getting diet in senior people's diaries easier. You know, we found access more. We would have interaction. I'd have interactions with pen and paper, you know, back and forth with people and real trust, you know. So I felt like, you know, I think Jerome will back up, you know, we felt like we had 10 or 12 relationships, not just one, if that makes sense. So there was a real trust, you know, in each market. 
And again, when we started to tap beyond just the marketing team into the business, where we started to tap beyond into the agencies and we were taking, when the sphere of influence started getting wider and, and more people started wanting to know what we were doing and more people were involved and validating the story, there was there was real momentum to it, you know, and a real... And how far was that into it? Because you started about 17, 18, is that right, with this process? Yeah, we've just got to put a COVID time on all of this, but, but I'd really say about 18 months in was really... 18 months in, you were like, this momentum started, the ball's running down the hill now. We've got to make it great. We've got to harness it. The narrative, you know, to be frank, like creatively, we felt a lot of pressure on us all because it's all right having the intent to do it, but to drones, Paul, the writing, then agreeing those words, right? Like, you know, those 28 words or whatever they are that the whole of Asia is going to agree to, which is setting our path. It was a real pressure back onto us all then, you know, around writing those the intent into actually the language and the team, you know, we all felt that pressure, let me tell you. But uh, again, the work we'd done was the foundationary work that made the words, words make sense, you know, and the words had real meaning to them. They weren't just a, a PowerPoint presentation, you know, they had intent, um, that they had a depth to them um, and they had a job to do. And I, th- I think that's one of the things Jerome touched on, which, which we did a really good job at as a collective is removing subjectivity and very much making this a job to be done, okay? And once you make transformation into a series of jobs and you you remove some of the questions of doubt about what ad or what colour or what template, operation, once you operationalise brand and you operationalise transformation and provide assets, people want the assets, they need it, right? And and that's once, once we moved out of conversations into now how do we operationalise this? Now how do we move everybody on this journey. How do we train? How do we teach? How do we have a common language? It went from being a, would you like this to when are we getting it? You know, and I, I really felt that momentum across the business. Well, let's fast track because I mean, 18 months on clearly was a very, you know, there was a lot of patience in the plan for the timeline on this, but it, so let's say 2018, it's now 2022, May 22. So four years on, where are we in this broader timeline for the transformation and what's next? And maybe also talk to us a little bit about those assets you talk about, because it's very diverse. It's from dealers to the point of contact with a customer to the advertising codes to you name it. It's a really diverse sort of portfolio. But maybe start off first, where are we now on this broader timeline of this transformation? And you did get to what you could call a single tagline. The markets don't have to take it. They choose to take it, I think is the case. But talk us through all that. Yeah, so we're really reaching now the uh, external implementation phase. And tagline is a is a big component of this externalization. But what's important to note is that here again, we do a market-by-market implementation. We want to find the best timing for each market based on their activities, their milestones, because we want to make sure that we launch this new tagline and this transformation you know, with substance, with proof points. So we don't want to have necessarily like a massive launch at the same time for all countries, but we want it to be relevant, credible, uh, relatable in each market. Some markets have started already from January. Others will only start in 2023. Right. Okay. So, But really, any market really only started this year then, so it's now fresh in the executional phase. That's correct. Yeah, that's around the tagline. Just so you know, we've had a big 
And we did the same in Australia. We better tell the audience what the tagline is, by the way. We keep them in suspense for too long. <laughs> we, we might. Let's, I'll answer the first question and then Jerome can answer that. But, but, but actually just picking up on what you just said about there's no big switch as well when you transform a brand. If you, you know, for the viewers that have watched what we've done with Toyota in Australia, it's a series of, again, a thousand things and opportunities. So just picking up on what did we do? We worked in closely with HR. We, we worked in closely with the dealers on transformation of service. We worked in closely with the design development back in the factory so that I'm most proud of a lot of the work that we've done mightn't even hit the market for eight years in a product form. So, you know, there's probably 15 hours of educational video and, and induction videos. There's probably in excess of 300 pages of guidelines. There's 100 templates, lots of practical tools that the markets can pick up and use, whether they whether they put the tagline on or not. So I think this is a really important thing, not, not making this about the tagline. There's a whole lot of assets and customer contact points and internal engagement contact points that will feel a lift. And we wanted to build the system that the brand felt contemporized and modern and new, regardless if you put the button on it or not, right? If you think about what we did in Australia, um, we didn't have to change a lot of feeling, we changed everything around it and what it stood for and what it felt like. And, and the role with Toyota across Asia or across TMAP was the same. So imagery, new templates, new fonts, you know, all the consistency that as it starts to roll out and make sense, will feel like the brand's transformed in front of your eyes over a period of 12, 18 months to three years. So it's not a fireworks campaign. We've talked a lot about not bumping a big fireworks campaign, having enough market proof points, having enough momentum that people felt change, not just saw it you know, in an ad. So that's why it may feel like it takes some time, but it, it's um, going to give us some longevity. Jerome, do you want to do the... Uh... Jerome, what's your sense on what various markets, is there a common area where they're picking up first and early? It may not be the tagline to Stu's point. That's a big sort of physical manifestation of what you've been doing. So is there other things that various markets are doing first to put the toe in the water or is some just jumping in for the whole kit and caboodle? One key dimension, and we highlighted that from the start, where, where markets started earlier, is the internal transformation. So we really made it clear that it has to start from within. You need to do first the, the job internally. You need to engage and educate your, your associates. And that's something that markets started earlier. And uh, we can see some markets really made big efforts to really talk to all the functions because typically this type of project may land in the marketing team. Right. But the big job is how do you then, you know, talk and engage all your functions and you make this relatable to them they're probably not familiar with brand and you need to make it applicable, relatable and, and appealing to them. That's a big, big work. And that needs to be reflected into the organization, the processes, the tools and assets need to be given to them. So that, that's, that's a part that uh, you know, most of our markets started earlier and, and I think did a pretty good job. But obviously it's a continuous process. The internal engagement is not something you can consider done and then you move to external. You need to continuously keep engaging your, your internal stakeholders because teams change, uh, members change as well, conditions, environment changes too. So we need, you need to make sure that they stay excited and they can continue to, to advocate this project strongly. I'll come to your sex, Hugh, but I do have to ask, so what is the tagline, even though we're saying it's not the lead? Okay. I'm busting to know. <laughs> okay, so the, the tagline is move your world, 
which is very consistent with the vision of mobility company and mobility for all. But what markets also like about this tagline is that it has both a very individual and also collective dimension. And, and this is very much aligned with uh, also our Asian customers. So there is a very strong uh, will to continuously move forward, but there's also a lot of consideration of the foundational values and, and, and society in general. So we think this tagline captures that pretty well. And was it hard to get there, to get consensus on that one? Or was, was there some mustering? Amazingly, we, we put probably about five or six into testing across all the markets. So all this was tested. Um, and Move Your World consistently, to be frank, we were, we were able to trademark it and get it across all markets. We were kind of, it's one of those obvious things that once you write it, you go, in the world of mobility, hasn't someone else written that? And, and they hadn't. Yeah, yeah, right. So it was a real, we really found, as I say, the point of the needle on the point of the needle on the point of the needle. Like it was... It was the micro on the top of a needle that's just unlocked so much and, and has been really powerful. And, and so, again, it was tested in market. Um, so, it was, you know, there was second and third prize. But it was one of those, again, it was the end of the journey, Paul, not the beginning, right? And once we got to the end of the journey, it was, it just made sense for everything we'd done and everything we'd written. But one interesting point we kind of drew on, and I probably forget about, is we never used the brand word in this project. We talked about, you know, Houston's approach as this voice identity and reputation. And what really was able to do when we when we moved out of people thinking brand and ads, and then we were very strict around that voice, that identity, and then building the reputation, it, it actually gave us that real structure to how we responded. So the voice and the story, the identity in the system, and then the reputation that we're going to build. So it, we kind of probably forgot that term that, that that, you know, we on purpose really didn't want it to be about advertising at the start. But by the end of it, people were like, we need something new to, to hold us together and to express us at, at the same way. So it, it by the end was um, very much us fulfilling a need then, not, not telling them they needed to do it. What's your hunch, Jerome, on when sort of you'll see more markets doing more common stuff from the new identity work? than not and the tagline. Do you think it's a couple of years before you start to see your market sort of aligned on either the tagline or just the full deployment of assets and how the new brand work is used? Yeah, I think if we if we look at the brand transformation project itself, yeah, it's probably a couple of years. But what's really interesting is to see that based on the foundation of the architecture, there are already other projects that are starting in terms of, you know, camping making and, and efficiency, bringing efficiency in, in the campaign making. And that's already starting too in parallel. So it's like, you know, it's seeds in many other areas that you can already see uh, bringing benefit. So it's not just the project itself. That's, that's really interesting. So it's, it's going way broader than the architecture and the tagline. So that was a really good way of not answering the question, Jerome. Well done, which was giving me a timeline. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you're doing there. Um, do you have a sense or you want to leave that to uh, for another day? No, I think we can I, I think we can really say between this year and next year, we will see definitely okay. very visible expression of the new brand architecture and and tone of voice in in all the markets across the region. Right. And I was going to say, what's next? So as we sort of wrap this conversation up, a really interesting one is, so what does the next 12 months, two years look like uh, in the region, both well, from your perspective, from both of your perspectives, and I guess what the customer will and the prospective buyers, car buyers, will see in Toyota that they 
may not have seen before? For, for me, what they'll start to see and feel and experience is a more modern, more contemporary Toyota. You know, and I think there will be an opportunity where the bigger story is told and that people remember we're taking people on a journey, Paul, right? Car company to mobility company. Our job is by the time we get there, that Toyota's had permission to be that company and the brands moved into that space. And that gives us permission to then offer different types of services, different types of products, different types of experiences to customers. That's that's what the heart of this, this transformation is about. While maintaining selling a million cars a year, right? On the same at the same time. So and I think much the same as we've seen happen in Australia, and you know, probably the Australian audiences have, have got the benefit of watching that transformation since 18 to now across Toyota. I hope and can see um, that type of a rapid change for Toyota across the region. And there's a need to, you know, there's a need to keep up, there's a need to contemporize. The world's changing, you know, and if organizations don't change um, with it and ahead of it, um, they'll get left behind. And I think there's been from Akio down a real understanding of the need for change. And it's interesting you say that, and Jerome might get you to talk to this, because there are other parts of the company that are doing some really interesting things that may absolutely appeal to those younger segments that we talked about might need a refresh. You're working on the Mars Lander, for instance. It's really interesting stuff. Some of the other things that the broader company is doing that sort of really would be quite, I guess, intriguing to some of the younger segments going, oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and I think that's also one of the benefits of having a, a common architecture is that Every individual initiative or activity that you do can also be connected back to this common framework and and consumers can experience different sides of the brand and it all makes sense. It's all consistent. And so every experience can reinforce the previous one. I think that's that's really an important thing. And and probably in the past, this is something we didn't have. And and that's going to really bring a lot of potential opportunities for us in the future. Before we get to the final question, what are the KPIs uh, that are on YouTube in terms of success delivery and what does it look like in terms of 12, 18 months? Because I'm sure you've got some benchmarks uh, over your heads as well as this has worked. What are those particular data points that are going to demonstrate some success for you other than sales, of course, which is the big one? So in the short term, we're looking at more like internal KPIs in terms of to see how this project has changed organizations, processes. And I can already tell you that brand has become much more prominent when it comes to business strategy and and objectives. So that's, that's, I think, a first KPI. And then obviously in a second stage and more externally, we will start measuring some of the brand attributes uh, that we're hoping will really, will really change and and we will see a a shift there on some of the aspects that we talked about earlier on being you know more energetic more contemporary etc yes and that needle might take a little while though right there's not going to be instant i don't imagine that's correct it it, yeah it takes time and paul we're working right now like we did with australia um in each market on benchmark you know where do we sit today what are those attributes that we set out to fix and to grow and expand and starting to monitor them from now so we've, you know, we've got nearly four years data in Australia of those, those type of attributes tracking back to brand and then back to sales. And then we will, we're working with them with each market. So we've taken the inputs of each one of the, the 17 markets, our teams working with each of the local teams in a set of key attributes in those markets that will make sure that market delivers on those jobs. 
So that, that very much is... And Stu, do you feel that the uh, trajectory and what's happened in the Australian market is a reasonable signal for what can be expected across the Asian markets as well? And just give us a couple of highlights on that for the, what Australia looks like and what you can expect in, uh, across Asia. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think it's kind of well documented out there, the increase of the youth appeal, um, more aspirational in terms of being a technology, some of those technology attributes, exciting to be honest. And, and it's not just this comms on the back of the kind of GR program, how do we add exciting back in? You know, the, the, the proposition we wrote was about the thrill and joy of moving together. You know, that was the internal statement. So that that thrill and reclaiming some of those kind of car attributes, you know, in, in into the business, we've seen all those increasing. You're seeing that come through in Australia with the Australian consumer. Absolutely. absolutely. More exciting, you know, more relevant, you know, relevance again, aiming some of the tech, you know, being able to be seen as a leader, not an old company, all those type of things. Um, we've seen that that in the Aussie market, and most people will feel that with the brand. I, I would suggest, um, and, and we've seen it. We've seen that translate into into sales and into the brand tracking. To wrap this one up, Jerome, your sense on the impact uh, internally of this program, what it's had on marketing, brand, and strategy function. Because I think even though you know, as you said right up front, this wasn't just a marketing or a brand project; it was all of company. But has there been, I guess, um, a halo that's sort of gone, you touched on it earlier, but it's been good for marketing and brand, this process. It's actually lifted the credentials, has it? Yes, correct. I think, again, we can see brand is much more prominent in the discussions, in the strategy. It's really part of the, the overall business strategy. Uh, so there's a mindset shift, I think, uh, up to the top management. You know, we're building a brand culture. We, we're really educating functions about brand outside of marketing. And that's a really big benefit of the project as well. It, in the process, it's a very strong source of engagement and motivation of our members. You see, again, the smiles. And I think it's, it really creates a deeper connection uh, to the company itself. And that's, that's a very, very big benefit of this project. Great conversation. I look forward to an update, I think, in 12 months' time because it'll be fascinating to see um, the outworkings of all this work. And gosh, what a long-term project. That's where you talk about long and short of it, you know, sort of four years and still just starting to implement now. It's an extraordinary sort of patience, if you like, certainly for a journo who's basically trying to turn copy around overnight. So four years, well done. Jerome Lewis and Stuart O'Brien, great conversation. Look forward to a follow-up, but thanks for the time. Um, Really, really fascinating combo. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having us. This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre, that's more. Producer Nick Slater, music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 audio edition to listen for free. Listener.